Thank you, Leslie and Paul. <clears throat> Good afternoon to the rest of you. Good to see you all here today. So, your Bibles are just automatically wanting to flip open to Daniel. You'll have to control that urge. I don't know how many weeks we were there, but we f- finished. <laughs> or we attempted, shall we say. And so, through the course of this week... Um, I had mentioned that we, I guess I felt we needed to just go to Ephesians chapter 6, right? Don't go there. <laughs> nice try. And that's kind of what I was studying all week. And because and, uh, it seems like our world is, we're, we're in a spiritual war. There's no question about it. Not that that just, we just understood that last week. I mean, it's been that way for Right? That's my point. <laughs> That's my point. There always seems like there's always been. And Daniel, as we went through chapter 10, particularly the last revelation, chapter, the last revelation given to Daniel, verse, chapter 10 through 12, uh, God pulled back the veil and we were able to see, just peek in beside, behind the invisible war that's taking place. That hasn't stopped. That will continue to the end. And we'll get there. But I was thinking about, it was actually uh, this morning. Where are we at? What's the most important thing that, that has really happened, not only to this nation, not only to other nations around the world, what's the most important thing that's really happened? Jesus Christ raising from the dead. And so that's next week. So I couldn't imagine what in the world we'd want to start a brand new study for. So what is today? What was the week before? It's probably the greatest turnaround in popular opinion of one person ever. Jesus Christ. Today is a day that we commemorate. We call it Palm Sunday or... Excuse me? Passion Week. What else? Okay, and what did, what did they call? What did we call that? What's the word we usually put with entry? Ta-da! There we go. I try. I, I kind of sucked you into that triumphal entry. But that is actually so not really how it looked or appeared. I was going to ask, which would be actually not a very good question, but how many of you have been to a coronation? I haven't. In fact, if the queen would die, we'd probably see one. I didn't intend anything by that, but I'm just but but you follow. I'm saying I mean, it doesn't happen very often. But when it happens, what is it? It's full of pomp and circumstance and amazing. And they they talked about uh, I think it would have been the 1860s probably when Queen Victoria was actually coronated as Queen of England. Um, the diamonds that were in place on her crown and in her scepter, I, I've never I wouldn't even know what a 509 carat diamond would look like, but it's big. I don't think ladies could carry it around, right? But those are things that would typically make up a coronation or a crowning. And to me, when I, and I usually use that rather than Palm Sunday, I think of the triumphal entry. It's what we talked about in Daniel chapter 9 of Messiah the Prince. He would be cut off. Uh, that, that, That sentence just doesn't seem right, does it? 
And literally within, it's no kidding, less than one week, thousands, tens of thousands were gathered. And they said this. We'll get to it in a moment. We'll read our passage, but I want to set this up. Hosanna! Hosanna. And to us, when's the last time that you went downtown Sheridan or Twin Bridges or Dillon or Bozeman or whatever and said, Hosanna! <laughs> you probably would be viewed as very needing help. <laughs> yep, very strange. And yet, even uh, the Pharisees chastised Jesus for saying, Wait a minute, Jesus, you, 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 need, to, you need to slow these people down. And he said if they wouldn't, Literally, the rocks would cry out. This was a moment in prophecy. This was a moment in history to us that literally God had set up that couldn't ever miss this moment. But nowhere that I'm aware of could you have changed a city that wanted a king. And five days later, literally, they had him hanging on a cross. But today is that day that I'd like to take a look at. Let's go to Matthew. We'll use that context uh, mostly today. Matthew chapter 21, and we'll read verses 1 through 11. Matthew chapter 21. Let's read those first 11 verses together. Matthew 21, beginning at verse 1. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, you shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell you the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before, and that followed, cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. May God add a special blessing in the reading of his word. And let us just pause momentarily before our study. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have to know truth because you have given it. You have shown us, you've declared it, and literally the Holy Spirit is able to show us when we've trusted Christ as Savior. Thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ. As we look at his life, his final journey, if you will, we would ask that you would guide us into your truth with the Holy Spirit exclusively being our teacher. It's with anticipation, Father, we look to gain just another level of relationship with you. Father, you love us. You've shown you've loved us by literally sh sending Jesus Christ, 
not only to die for us as he was buried, but then to prove that that sacrifice, that grace was complete and full and not needing anything, you raised him from the dead. That literally broke the chains, the power, the penalty of sin. We're still under the consequence, but Father, we can look forward to life eternal when we've accepted Christ because it's a beginning, a new birth. This is the time of year that we have a sense of the most powerful event that's ever happened in this world. You designed it. You spoke of it. Father, you even decided before you made anything else. How could we ever be thankful enough? But now, these moments are yours. We lift you up. We're thankful for those that have come out this afternoon, and we would ask that you would bless them and their families as we look deeper into the Word. Father, there are those as well that were not able to be here and attended to be. We would ask that you again would put your arms around them, lift them up. May they feel the love that only you are able to give. But once again, Father, we look with anticipation, asking the Spirit now to guide, direct us in all truth. And these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. As we've spoke briefly about this event, which uh, Jesus had, um, it was his final journey. It was, we could, we, could, we could stage it that way. You know, you've heard of pilgrimages that, you know, would lead you to wherever. Um, a Muslim, their place, they have a pilgrimage to go to Mecca. Um, there are people that have places that they, this is a final destination. This is somewhere they, they really need to go. Well, if you were to study Jesus Christ's life, literally this was the culmination. This was the climax. This was the ending. However, the disciples would have had no idea. They were actually fearful for Jesus to go to Jerusalem because there was things going on around the countryside that literally were, it was pretty clear that the people in charge weren't very happy with Jesus. In fact, they wanted to take him out. They wanted to take his life. They wanted to snuff him out before he got any more popular because he was getting in the way. He was saying and doing things that literally was taking and making people think about things that they didn't really care to think about. Again, if, I, if you would have said the word Messiah uh, out loud, put it on a board, had a seminar, the basic thing that an Israelite would have wanted, when you say Messiah, that is king. Oh, yes, that's a king. But they want to get out from underneath Roman rule. And that was not anywhere near what Jesus Christ literally came to do. So this is a day in history that could have not ever been stopped because God had declared it. We'll look at the prophecy and how it is fulfilled, I mean, precisely. But it also is a time of a humble crowning. That doesn't even fit together, does it? <laughs> that's, that's an oxymoron. What do you mean a humble crowning? That is exactly what took place. That is exactly what took place. I'd like to take, uh, let me, uh, maybe we've got a map that I'm going to see if I can, I didn't look at it beforehand, but we, uh, this would be uh, Israel in the time of Jesus. And uh, he certainly, as, as even they described in the passage we read today, that he was from Galilee. 
And uh, I don't have my little pointer. Excuse me. Oh, there you go. Anything better. I don't know what I did with my pointer, which isn't too important, I guess. But you'll see Nazareth there just uh, by Nain. And that was where he grew up. It was in the region of Galilee. Now, we know from just the previous passages of scriptures in the, in the Gospels that he would have been some months before even been making his way down for this event. Uh, by the way, there's a reason to be in Jerusalem, not today per se. I'm, and again, we're, we're, we're going to dive into the sandals of those people. Okay, So it wasn't just showing up on this day which was probably eventually, as he got into Bethphage, it would have been Saturday evening. But there's something coming up that is a very, very big deal. And it is the, the Passover. And the Passover, let's remind ourselves, what's significant about a Passover? If you were going to say, what is the biggest event, the biggest festival, the biggest feast in the Israelites' annual calendar, you would say a Passover. And why is that? What's significant about that? When they came out of Egypt, and why, why, did, why was that such a big deal? About 400 years. How many of you have been slaves for over 400 years? It was meant to be a joke, but you're not even smiling, so we've got to loosen you up a little bit more. <laughs> but if you can imagine a nation that it's supposedly, now keep this in mind, this is really important. Uh, this is a nation that God chose when he chose Abram to be his chosen people, and now this people has been in Egypt enslaved not the whole 400 years, because there was a time frame of which they would have expanded. Remember who was in charge then? Joseph, along with. He was a co-regent, if you will. A co-pharaoh, and that's not really the right terminology. You understand what I'm saying. That was good, because Pharaoh realized what Joseph had done with the power of his God to literally save not only Egypt, but the world. And you remember how he got there. It was easy peasy, right? It's amazing how God uses situations that literally we turn back and look and we say, that was God working in a very difficult situation. And none of you can express any, all of us can, can't we? If we really give credit where credit's due, it's amazing how God has used difficult situations to grow us and to literally help the rest of his world to become better. And, but as it went on, isn't it amazing how time separates us from truth. You get another pharaoh and another pharaoh and another pharaoh and about the third or fourth pharaohs, pretty soon no one can remember anything that took place in regard. What, 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 are, what, what are those Israelites doing over there? They're just getting larger. They're becoming a problem. What are we going to do with them? In fact, that was a very key element as they were discussing it. We need to control them, and obviously we need more labor. So let's just make them slaves. And who's going to stop us? Well, as you know one. And they cried out to God, and after a period of time, God said, I hear you. And to watch that unfold through Moses, who Moses was all about getting out from underneath the Egyptian rule, except he was going to do it his way. Have you ever tried to do God's will your way? doesn't work out. We usually have shortcuts involved. We've got new things that we thought about that we really think are important. And if it's not God's way, it's not going to work out. And Moses actually killed a man, runs off into hiding, herded sheep for 40 years. That'll get your attention. And thought, probably thought, here's, here's, he thought he was completely washed up. 
There's nothing left. I'm going to be a sheep herder for the rest of my life. That's depressing. It would be for me. (laughs) But then God showed up. Just out of the blue, out of any ordinary day. There was a burning bush. Except it never was consumed. And God had a message. I want you back in Egypt. Who? Who? Me? We had those moments. But he meant business. And then you know the story. It unfolds. But literally at the very last plague, an unbelievable miracle happened. It was the death of the firstborn. But if you followed instructions and you had a lamb and it was slain, the blood was put on the doorposts, the angel of death would pass over that house. Pass over that house. Because the price had been paid on that house. That's what they commemorated all of those years. Exodus chapter 12 was when that was brought before them. Say, don't ever stop doing this. This is huge. It was a picture, really, literally, of what we sitting in this room here today and hearing my voice. He is our Passover, speaking of Jesus Christ. Said of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Only place in the New Testament it's actually literally said that way. But it is exactly why we can sit here with confidence today is because he is our Passover. John, uh, think of John the, John the Baptist, right? What do you think about when I say John the Baptist? Wow, he's a wild man, right? We could have called him probably a mountain man, except there wasn't many mountains. But he would have been, right? He was just, he was a rough and tough guy. And he obviously was down by the Jordan River because he baptized people. What did he baptize them for? He says, repent for Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. You, you need to get your heart right. That's, that's the part that's hard for me to, to see why they couldn't see this coming. It was never about get ready because we're going to beat the Romans. That wasn't the message. The message was get ready, repent, because you need to get your heart right. That's pretty good, isn't it? First words, I don't know how far off he was, but John the Baptist, the first time he saw Jesus, the first thing he said was, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. John one twenty nine. That was so insightful. First thing he says. And then Jesus says he needs to be baptized. And John, oh, no, no, no. I'm the wrong guy for that. You should baptize me. But, of course, Jesus did it. Why? Because of prophecy. Because it was declared that way. Okay, we're getting, getting a little bit offhand. But at the same time, do you see the significance of the Passover? It's, it's monstrous. And this is what everybody's coming into town for. This is an event that happens annually and is with great expectation, great fervor, because it's really a huge event. And Jesus has been working on this. It wasn't something that just came up. Now, how long has he been ministering around the region, shall we say, or in Israel? How many? Three years. Three years. And so, literally, we find that one of the last things that he did... Can we find, oh, here's Jericho right here. He would have probably come, oh, started, well, there's, it's hard for us to know exactly, but these last few days he would have come through Perea because we know we have followers of Perea. He would have crossed the, 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 river, the Jordan River and ended up at Jericho. What do we know he did at Jericho? He actually healed blind men, Bartimaeus in one account, two blind men. And so he's making his way there. 
Now, we also know at the very end that he, he went from Jericho to there's a little town that is called Bethphage. We, we were introduced to it in Matthew chapter 21. It's probably very close to Bethany. Now, what do you know about Bethany? What do you know about Bethany? Anything? Right. Really close friends. Really, really. This is like family friends. And this is, now if you can think about this, Jesus would have come from Jericho. He would have been to Bethphage. And then literally just a hop, skip, and a jump, you would be at Mary and Martha's house. Now something had happened in that home not very far before that, in that Lazarus, their brother, had died. And Jesus intentionally waited until he died. Now what kind of friend is that? In fact, it was hard on the girls, wasn't it, Mary and Martha? If you would have only been here, just, just, if, you know, it's like, why couldn't you, because you can do anything. Why couldn't you be here earlier? Do you, see, do you see, that's how we are sometimes. We can't see the impossible in God, and yet we see it through our possible. That was how Martha and Mary saw it. But Jesus said, oh, no, I waited so that God would be glorified and to see what we really can do. And then you know that he was raised from the dead. And that was fully accepted by everyone and everywhere. It was great excitement throughout the land. Except. Except whom? The rulers, the leaders, the guys that are supposed to be in touch with God. See, that's what Jesus did really well is he confronted false religion. He got right in the face of those that weren't godly at all. And this is no exception. No exception at all. And literally, are you ready? They wanted to kill Lazarus because it made Jesus look good. (laughs) Those are the leaders. And Jesus is back in town. In fact, let's take a look. We'll hold your place in Matthew. Let's dive back for a moment into uh, John chapter. Let's go to the book of John. John chapter 12. And if you were to read John chapter 11 you would find that that was the miracle of, that happened at Bethany at their home that Lazarus was raised from the dead. Um, I would like to just, let's take the reactions of that. I want you to set you into place. So let's start in John chapter 11, and we'll start in verse 45. Now, literally, Jesus has just raised a man from the dead. Verse 45, Then many of the Jews which came to Mary, this is John chapter 11, verse 45, came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did and believed on him. That would make me believe. Really, right? I mean, you, you knew Lazarus. He's been in the tomb for how many days? Four days. Most of those don't come out. Right. I'm sorry. It's just, it's just you know, I, well, he could, could, he could still come out. It could happen. It doesn't work that way. And then Jesus, he says, roll the rock away. And, of course, the confidence level was, no, let's not do that. Bad idea. Bad idea. <laughs> and then he says, Lazarus, come forth. Surprise of all surprises, this one caught up in the trappings of burial stuff comes forth. And he says, loose him and let him go. Now, here's the next verse. Then many of the... Oh, I already read that. Would you believe at that point? (laughs) If you're not going to believe, I don't think anyone will make you believe. Because then you've chosen not to believe. And by the way, by the way, this is one of the biggest problems we have in our world today. Is the fact that there's people that have chosen not to believe. Because if you choose to believe, 
then you're accountable and responsible for a creator, a God that has made you, an awesome God that is over and above anything that we can think or imagine. But it's, so it's easier in their case not to believe, just choosing not to believe. I asked, uh, there's, a, there's a man that you've, that you've prayed for without knowing him, Steve. I've introduced you to him over the last couple of, well, actually several years. And Steve, uh, we visit once in a while. And, and I, I, I'm still hoping for the day that I can come here and I can say, Steve chose to accept the truth that Jesus Christ died for him and that he accepted him as his Savior. I still I pray for that, and I ask that you would as well. But one of the things that Steve is really stumbling on is now he believes that there at least is a... I don't know if he'd say creator yet. But he knows that there's so much design, there is so much awesomeness that it can't just be something that happened. That's a great place to start. He fully admits that now. So it's a start, isn't it? But when you ask him, I said, if you knew it was truth, will you allow yourself to believe it? And it's just like this stop. It's like, you know, no, he can't do that. Now, where do you think that's coming from? That's from all of the things that Satan is trying to throw out there. It's deceivableness. That's one of the first things we're going to do when we get to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. We're going to talk about the, there are several ways that Satan is attacking us. And there's not, a, actually, he does not have this playbook that is just extensive with three. It's not like an NFL playbook that has 450 plays. And I'm not saying I own one of those books or have seen one, but, you know, there's a play for everything. No, no. Satan's stuff is really quite simple. We'll see that when we get there. There's not very many plays, and they work. It's amazing how often they work. It's totally, and deception is one of the greatest ones. At any rate, Choosing not to believe. That's what the Pharisees had literally done. And it, wouldn't, it hasn't started just recently. What verse did I stop and then I didn't know where to keep going? Do you remember? Verse 46, chapter 11 of John. Some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what the things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests, the Pharisees, a council, and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. What, what would you? Shouldn't that like turn the lights on? Not if you choose not to believe. And why didn't they not believe? This is important. Why do people not believe today? Right? Because what would happen? They would lose potentially power, authority, wealth, all the things that literally were their gods. Is that what is happening in our country? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Everybody worships something or someone. And what did John say? Abstain or what was the word? It was the last verse of 1 John. He said, uh, from flee, was it flee from idol? You know what? Now I've got to find out. Let's just go there. Sorry. Sorry for my lack. Let's go to 1 John chapter 5. It's the last verse. Talk about set us up. Don't lose your place in Matthew. We'll be right back. First John, this is for me, not for you. Sorry. Thanks for being patient. Yeah, there it is. Look at that. Isn't it? This is how you end. You've had first John is about love. It's about bre- it's, it, it's about so many things. He says in verse 13 about the assurance of eternal life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. That is a fantastic verse. But he ends with this one, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. <laughs> you know, that, that's so, it's so good, isn't it? It's so frank. It's exactly what our problem is. 
Go ahead and see what you, where you've spent your day, how many hours that you've spent doing things, and it's amazing where your God is because where you spend time. Remember what I asked you to do, uh, or maybe not asked you to do, but one of the keys to Daniel? We went through 12 chapters of that book, all of them, and we studied Daniel and his diligence. And you guys named all of his characteristics and his attributes, things that really made him cool, that made him really all that he was characteristically following after God. And what was the main reason we found that literally he was who he was? Now, of course, the things that we see, you, you answered correctly. You said, that, well, he, he trusted God. He had faith. But see, there's one step behind that. It's not like you open the door and, and you just, and, and, and in comes trust. You know, well, what, let's see if it happens. Now, we're in church. We're studying the Bible. Watch now. Get ready. Oh, I got ran over by trust. Of course not. I can't really get away from it, right? It's not like that. So how did it happen? He spent time with God. He was committed to spending time with God. Even when sometimes it wasn't necessarily fun. I'll give you an example of that in chapter 6, I believe it is, of Daniel. Not, not going to relive Daniel, but it, it's amazing, though, how he chose to do the right thing regardless of consequence. Which you do that when you spend time with God because you can trust God. See? And when they made this law up in the morning and said, you know, if anybody doesn't really literally worship the king for a month, it was amazing. Why didn't they say two years? Why didn't they say three years? Why didn't they say a week? What, what, what difference would it have made? It wouldn't have made a bit of difference if they said just this to Daniel. This is what's really cool. I want you to get this. If they would have said, if you worship any other god but the king today, you're going to get thrown in a den of lions. They could have done that because you know what Daniel would have done at noon like he did every other day? He met with God. He met with God. That's the key to who Daniel was. That's the key to you grabbing another. I think of it this way. You know, when, you, when, when, you, when you're, it's like just pulling yourself up and you look into a new room you've never been in before. That's literally relational with God. As you spend more time with him, there's something fresh. There's something relationally that he is unfolding for you as you spend more and more time in his word, which drove Daniel to the prayer. And as he prayed more, he went back to the word. That's what happens. Okay. It's not a bonus round. In other words, you at the end of the year said, well, wow, I read the Bible all the way through. That means I am up for an honor. No, no. I remember as a, as a young boy that I actually... That was the goal, and I read through the Bible in a year. And whoo, kudos, right? It's great. Anything wrong with that? No. Please say no. But if you would have asked me what I retained, in fact, it was later, someone asked, well, does it, I mean, is, is it kind of like, does it all fit together? You know, like, you know, you know, I couldn't even answer the question. Because there's Old Testament, and then there's New Testament, and that's sort of like follows, right? But is everybody chronological? No, of course it's not. But do you see how little I captured? But I captured something. You see what I'm trying to say? It's not just about brownie points. Heavens no. It's relationship that takes you to the new level, that next level up. That's where Daniel was. That's where the disciples, you know, the disciples had no clue what was going on right now. We're on, we're on triumphal entry day. They don't have a clue what's going on. Why is that? Have you ever thought about that? I'm not going to answer the question. I'm going to ask you right now. It, you know, for, in fact, during the same time in one of the gospels, it says that he literally unfolded for them that he was going to be put to death. He would be betrayed. He would suffer and he would be put to death. 
How, how obvious is that? It's like, why don't we follow up and say, well, explain that to you. I don't understand that. How could the Messiah? They don't know none of that. They just put it off. They, not, nothing going on. How come they didn't get it? We'll be talking about that in a little bit. Let's go back. Uh, John chapter 11, but go back there. Let's keep moving now. I, I promise. I, let's keep moving. What are we going to do with this guy that does miracles? Verse 48, if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. Oh, that's a bummer. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place. Uh-oh, you see exactly where they're at, and they're going to lose position, prominence. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all, nor consider it that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish. Boy, he said something without understanding what he said. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence into a country near to the wilderness, into a city named called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. That's where there's so many people in town. Then sought they for the Jesus, spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think you? You think he will come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he was, he should show it that they might take him. Pretty obvious what they want. Really obvious. And then I'd like to read, I'm gonna, we're going to read chapter 12, the first few verses, because this sets up where Jesus is in this final entry, this final journey into Jerusalem. Watch this. This mirrors what we just read in Matthew chapter 21. Here we go. Chapter 12, verse 1, John. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Okay, now get, a, get, a, get a thought of, I guess, what, what did I say? Just kind of slip into the moment of that. This was a special, special evening. This is one where you could just like, ha, ah, I'm amongst friends, close friends. This is truly sweet. Isn't it? It's fantastic. Except, it's amazing. Who's there that really you'd rather he wasn't? This case it was Judas Iscariot. What was he there for? Excuse me? They were all there, yeah. That would be like a bittersweet moment though, right? I mean, all family except Judas. And Judas is ferocious. He's mad. He's really ticked off because Mary, for heaven's sake, she took this spikenard, which if you figured out, it cost about one year's salary. And she just broke it and put it on Jesus. Judas just comes, he comes unglued. He comes unglued. He, talk about change the tenor of the moment of that evening. He goes on in verse, verse, five, verse 4. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? No, oh, it sounded so... Even that night, can you imagine? It sounded so yucky. I can't imagine this, those people in that home. This is not a public event. This is something that's very, very touching and homey, if you will. And out of the blue, Judas just rises up. Now, he has never really been a loudmouth to this, has he? 
Why do you think? Well, it tells us. It tells us exactly the deal. It sounds like he's the treasurer. He said that not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. (laughs) Well, I wonder where he's at. Had the bag and bear that which wasn't there. Then said Jesus, let her alone against the day of my burying. Has she kept this? For the poor always have you with me, with you, but me you have not always. Back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 21. You can see this has been a moment, a time of where Jesus is, what shall we say? He knows how quickly things will turn. He knows what's going to happen. But I want you to see that he uses a trigger event to set up exactly the time frame for him to be crucified. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 21. And now let's read verses 1 and 2. When they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, verse 2, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway, that's immediately, you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, you shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. So he sends two disciples. He says, I got a job for you. This is the next morning. This is the day that we call Palm Sunday, triumphal entry, whatever you want to call it. He sets it up. Did you notice that? When's the last time you saw any kind of a coronation, a crowning, that the guy or the gal that was crowned set it up? They don't do the details. It comes to them. Jesus sets this thing in motion, and for, it's called, I would call it a trigger event. He says, you need to go into town, and there's going to be a donkey and her foal, a colt, tied there. Bring them to me. And there's a sense of right away, don't linger, get after it. Oh, and by the way, if someone asks you, which you've heard of horse thieves, this would look like that. This would look like that. Because as you're walking up, oh, there they are. And, I'm, you know, do you see a donkey and her, and her colt? Very many of them tied side by side? Probably not. So there they are. Oh, well, there they are. And, you know, even wouldn't you think as you're walking up to untie them, you'd say, this just doesn't seem right. <laughs> it just doesn't seem right. Correct? But they did what Jesus said. And, you know, they didn't, like, look around. I wonder if we should find the owner. No, no, he didn't say that. He said, loose them, bring them to me. And if anybody comes to you, then you tell them that the Lord has need of them. So this is obviously somewhat, oh, by the way, and he said they will let you have them. That sounds like a family friend to me. It sounds like somebody he was aware of, someone they would have known. And so they go, and he leads them back immediately. So this final journey, actually, there's some prophecy within it. In fact, it tells us in verse 4 of the same Matthew chapter 21, All of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell you the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee meek and sitting upon an ass and a colt, the foal of an ass. Now, let's go back to hold your place here. Let's go back to. I got to think about this for a second. Okay, I got to go. Just went blank. Have you ever had your mind go blank? There it is. Zechariah. Okay. Go, if you can just go back from Matthew and then you run to the Italian prophet, Malachi. And then if you go to Zechariah chapter 9. He was Italian, wasn't he? <laughs> that, is not, that is not correct. That is stretching. Malachi is his correct name, but, but it was a nice fix today. Zechariah, he's right next to the left of Malachi. 
Verse 9 of chapter 9 of Zechariah. Now, if you were to do a study of the first eight verses, you'd find, in fact, that those are verses that would correspond to Alexander the Great, which came about 100 years after Zechariah would have given this particular prophecy. But in verse 9, it takes a different turn. Watch what it says. Now, keep in mind what is just, while you're doing that, now, now wait, now, now, don't, don't read it yet, don't read it. This was written a long time before, okay? And we just read that Jesus, on this morning, after this cool evening, I mean, wouldn't that, wouldn't that have been fantastic to be in that home to watch Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who has just been risen from the dead, not very far before that. And then Mary comes out and breaks his perfume. And I mean, it, the, the house must have been... And I, I really, though, I mean, again, I can't tell you what would have been like to have the spirit, I'm going to say it, the spirit of Antichrist in that home. And that's the spiritual warfare we're going to be talking about. No one else in that house knew who Judas Iscariot was in the sense of how much he had sold himself out, except Jesus. But that war goes on behind the scenes. But the next morning, Jesus gets up and he says to two disciples, was it Peter and John? I don't know. But they were kind of those, kind of that executive committee, if you will. And he said, I want you two guys to go immediately, go to the village and find this donkey and her colt. And you bring them back right away. Let's watch this. Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Why, Why do we call daughter of Zion? Who is that? Who's the daughter of Zion? Israel. In fact, Zion is, is a, a prominent mountain in the Jerusalem area. It's higher than Mount Moriah, actually. And to daughter of Zion, which be the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel. Okay? It says, O greatly, O, rejoice, O greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation. Lowly, another word we could say is meek. And riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Now, that's like picture perfect, is it not? I just go with the donkey, right? No, that's not what the prophecy said. We had to have the donkey and her foal, of which, which one did Jesus ride on? The foal. The one that had never been written. In fact, we could go into a couple of different prophet, a couple of different Old Testament things. If you have, there was a sense of almost honor where there was a horse or a, in this case, a donkey that had never been ridden before. There's, there's some sense of uniqueness and a quality to that. But he fits this perfectly. Now, how many, how, how many of you think we're thinking about Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 in this, this moments of... Why, why, why did we go get the stupid donkey? What are we doing here? What, what are we doing here, right? How many times do we wonder about what we're doing? Why do we have to do that? I can't believe God made me, right? I wonder what those disciples, were they happy? I don't know. So he brings them back. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 21. If you've noticed, it said that he's a king, he is just, he is humble or meek, and he's mounted on a colt. What is that a picture of? When's the last time you saw a king in any kind of an event, anything described that would be doing it that way? <laughs> Never. I would be right. Never. What would this be a picture of? 
quite honestly. What would this be a picture of? Does this sound like military might? I mean, you're laughing now. I can see it. He's riding on a colt of a donkey. That's, that's powerful. That's really powerful. <laughs> now, no weapons, no armor, no nothing, right? Humble. It would be a picture of peace in the sense of physical containment. Okay? Interesting. Let's keep going. Now, let's go back to Matthew chapter 21 and... The disciples went, verse 6, and did as Jesus commanded them, thank you, and brought the ass and the colt and put on them their clothes, and they set him there on. In other words, you know what? They didn't know which one he was going to ride. Did you, did you know that Jesus was a donkey whisperer? <laughs> I tell you what, if I've got a, particularly a colt, I just can't imagine just getting on. <laughs> I, there's going to be some eventfulness, shall we say. But they put their clothes, their, co- their, their, their uh, garments on both of them. And we know from, other, from the other passages in the, in the uh, Gospels that he chose to ride, just as it said in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the colt. Verse 8, a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? Let's hold your place. And let's go back to 2 Kings chapter 9. 2 Kings chapter 9, and let's look at verse 13. 2 Kings 9, verse 13. 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. We're we're jumping into the middle of 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 a context, but stay with me. Then they hasted, verse 13, chapter 9, 2 Kings, and took every man his garment and put it under him on the top of the stairs and blew a trumpet saying, Jehu is king. Literally, there's a sense of submission. They took their garments, they took their clothes, and literally at the top of the stairs, it was like this makeshift throne, and they, they put him on top of these garments. That is exactly the same idea that is going on with Jesus in sitting on this donkey's Colt, and also, as they're going, it would be like the red carpet treatment, except these are smelly old tunics, right? But it was the best they had. Again, do you see, this doesn't really look very royal, but it was exactly as it was planned and designed by God. It also says that they cut down branches from trees and strew them in the way. The multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, now, did you see that? There's like this huge, there's two crowds. And there's, there's thought to be hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, this, this word that's used is massive. It's a lot of people. How did they all come together for this thing? Well, again, we said because of the Passover. And who's in control of all things? Today, if you're, if you're doubtful, if, you look, if you've watched the news, if you've looked at our country, if you've looked at the world and you've looked at who apparently is in charge, God is in charge. God is fully and completely in control. Just as he was that day, over 2,000 years ago, this is set up to fit exactly what his story, history to us, has unfolded exactly as Zechariah had laid it out. It's amazing. There's nothing in doubt here. This was going to happen. There's a crowd in front of him. What are they doing? They're laying out their garment, literally putting their garments out as it's the red carpentry. And so we have this colt that is literally walking on top of garments and branches, palm branches. That's why it's called Palm Sunday. And then behind him are these another multitude of people that are becoming, and they're all saying the same thing. Hosanna. 
Now, do you guys know what Hosanna means? This is important because this is the whole deal. This is why they're there. Okay, and it's even more pertinent than that. So, yeah, save. Listen carefully. They want to be saved now. Save now. (laughs) In fact, when it says, Hosanna in the highest, what is that saying? Save now is the maximum degree of what we're looking for. We want to get out away from the Romans, right? Any tyrannical government, dictatorship, we would want the same thing. In fact, let's turn back to John chapter 12 for a moment. John chapter 12 unfolds for us there from John's perspective. John chapter 12. Let's read verses 12 and 13. John chapter 12. On the next day, this is actually um, after this, we read the story about uh, Jesus being at Lazarus, Mary, and Martha's house. On the next day, much people, verse 12, that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. How great is this? What do you think the disciples are doing now? (laughs) We win. We got it. I don't know why. I don't know what happened. I mean, we were just kind of like scared to come to Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, Jesus tells us, we get this donkey and this colt. And we bring him back. And we put garments on him. And poof, there's people. And there's praising. And it's fantastic. And they're all saying, Hosanna, save us now. And I can't really get more excited. But you guys don't see that being this exciting, (laughs) right? I don't know what's happened, but it's fantastic, right? Have you ever had those moments where you, I don't know what happened here, but it really worked. It's really working. That must have been what it must have been exhilarating. It must have been, in fact, as I said earlier, that the Pharisees caught wind of this and were actually very disturbed. Told Jesus to tell them to just cool it, to shut it down. And Jesus said, no. He said, the rocks literally will cry out if they don't. Ooh. So we've had the last journey. We've had prophecy. And we're seeing praise at an all-time level. I, I can't imagine what that must have sounded like. Hosanna! And again, you would hear that at that massive level. But now here's something that's really strange. Have you ever been in a really large crowd and you have no idea what the excitement's about? That's what's going on here. Because watch what happens in the next verse. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 21. This praise is going on. Read it, verse 9 again. The multitudes that went before that follow, and that followed, both of them cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. You see, that's an interesting thing, the Son of David. That would mean they recognized the Messiahship. This is, again, now this fits Scripture. This is, this is another prophecy that's, been, that's being unfolded. And, and as Jesus said, you know what? If, if people tried to clamp, tried to shut their mouth, you know what happened? Those rocks would say the same thing. <laughs> they would have said it. God can't be stopped. Let me say that again. God can't be stopped. One more time. God can't be stopped. When he was, verse 10, he was come into Jerusalem, all of the city was moved, saying, oh, by the way, um, from this little community, it's probably only thought between a half mile outside of Jerusalem. So if you can understand this, this, this 
entourage, this sense of celebratory parade, would have started outside of Jerusalem, and by the time it got into Jerusalem, it was massive. It would have taken the it would have taken the city by storm. Now, again, with all of these people coming into Jerusalem, does everybody know what's going on? No, in fact, let's read it. Verse 10. When he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved. That means they were perplexed. They were confused, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Turn back to John for a moment. John chapter 12. John chapter 12, and let's look at verse 16. John 12, 16. These things understood not his disciples at the first, John twelve sixteen, But when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. Remember I asked you a little bit ago, how come they didn't have this figured out? At this point, they're still thinking, hey, we're finally, we've been in this thing for three years. looks like we're finally going, ka-ching, this is going to work. We are in. The Romans are out. Jesus is in. And then next week, we're going to talk about Passion Week. Because it's very different. What would you be doing? Okay, now, wait, wait a minute. Now, this is, this is the new king, right? Tens of thousands of people have declared him, Hosanna, save us now, and we're behind you, and we're with you 100%. So what would you do on Monday? What would you do the next day? What would be the first thing you would do? Start mopping up the Romans, Right? Starting having some community meeting. Let's, let's get some things set out. Let's see. We're going to have to take care of those people there. We're going to have to take care of them. And although, by the way, Pilate's kind of hanging around. He's got some power. We're gonna, right? Isn't that what you'd be doing? Do you know what he did the next morning? This is kind of taking a little bit of thunder for next week. Do you know what he did the very next morning? Monday morning's first order of business. Now, wait a minute. This is the king of the Jews. Yeah, he's lowly. He's meek. He's riding on a, on a colt. But do you remember what they were saying? Save us now. Save us, save us, save us. We want a Savior. We want our Messiah. Are you ready? The next morning, he goes to the temple and he starts throwing them out. And he breaks up this cartel of corruption where they're getting ready for the lambs to be slain for Passover. In fact, Monday, do you know what that day was on Passover week? That was the day that the Passover lamb was selected. And when he went into that temple and started throwing things around, that was confusing. And do you know who latched onto that right away? Because right now, at the end of this Sunday, of this triumphal entry, of this day of coronation, this humble crowning, do you know who's the most fearful in that city? Are the Pharisees and Sadducees. They are afraid like you can't imagine. And then the next morning he breaks in and he throws all this stuff out and he says, you have made my father's house a den of thieves. All of the corruption, those people that have come from a long ways away and they had brought their lamb with them because it was more special that way. This was a very special annual event. And of course, the, should we say the authorities? Well, one moment here, one moment. We need to inspect this lamb because we want only the best. Because that's the way God would want it. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, little Blinky is not quite as good as we would hope. 
if you've noticed, he's not... Oh, do you see that on his right hind leg? There's just that wool isn't just quite right. I'm sorry. We're just not going to be able to... But, but we, good news, good news, good news. You can trade Blinky in. Because we've got some really perfect lambs right here. Just in cases just like this. But he's only going to cost, well, you know, a little bit more. <laughs> Guess where Blinky goes? To the next guy. <laughs> it's a business. It's, do you see what? That had to just, just exasperate and infuriate Jesus Christ, who was the Lamb of God. Do you see why you can't buy Jesus? You can't trade for Jesus? You have to come to Jesus. And literally, it's even better than that. Do you know what that scripture said in Zechariah 9, 9? It said that your king comes to you. When's the last time you had a king come to you? It doesn't happen. Do you understand what God has just... What, this is amazing. But Jesus isn't ready to kick the Romans out. Jesus is ready to kick sin out. That's why he came. You talk about power. You talk about wipe the world out. He came, he came to confront sin. He came to confront false religion. He came to f- confront power. He came to confront wealth. He came to confront all of those things that were taking the place of who God should be. And the hate was on. The next five days, literally, from the morning of Monday, when he chose to go in and clean things up in the temple, make things right, standing up for what is really God's, you can just see the sentiment start to tumble. Tumble and tumble. Remember I asked, this is a little bit, well, I should say this. Why come the disciples didn't have this figured out? Jesus has been with them for three years. This isn't the first time that he's told them that he's going to be crucified. And they're trying to fit this all together. Well, wait a minute. He just told us last night that we're, he's going to be like, well, you know, the C word, the cross deal and stuff. Do you know, when before you trusted Christ as Savior, now some of you may have done it as, as an inf- you know, I would say at a very young age, okay? But you that have come to Christ earlier, or later, I'm sorry, earlier than it, okay? Later in your life, and now after trusting Christ, and you turn around and you say, how come I couldn't see that? Have you ever had that? Sure you have. I mean, it was big as life. How come I didn't see Christ? How come I didn't see the need? How come I didn't see how it fits together? The same reason the disciples couldn't. When did the Holy Spirit come? (coughs) At the day of Pentecost, Jesus ascended. And what did he say was going to happen in John chapter 16? I must go so the Comforter can come. Let's Let's look to John chapter 16. Let's go to John chapter 16 for a moment. And verse 13, this is part of what he even prayed. John 16 verse 13. John chapter 16, we'll start in verse 7. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now, at that point, I'm sure they said, we'll go with you. We'll just go with you. We see you. We know you. We trust you. We want you. Comforter thing, I don't know anything about it. 
Sometimes that's how we act actually in life, as God is preparing us for something even more extravagant in the sense of relationally. No, we're okay with right now. That's why it says the trying of your faith grows you. Get you ready. He's saying the same thing. Verse 8. When he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. What does that mean? You couldn't understand them. Howbeit, verse 13, watch. When he, the spirit of truth, is come... He will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but that whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. When did it all fit together? When the Holy Spirit came. Do you know when things started to fit together in your life when you trusted Christ? Because the Holy Spirit indwelt you. The Holy Spirit is guiding you in all truth. He's using the word. That's why we need to read the word of God. That's how we're guided. That's how we're taken to another level. It's the Holy Spirit guiding us into truth. That's exactly what happened to disciples. Those three years they walked with Jesus, they're just taking stuff in. They don't get it. You got any questions about it, just keep reading the Gospels. They, they don't get it. But after he left, after he was glorified, we read that in John already. After he was glorified, that's what that was about. What if Jesus had been the king? That humble coronation and all of a sudden he lines up and the Romans are whacked and gone What would have happened? Not anything that would have mattered. Not anything that would have mattered. It was just like the same thing. What if if God would have allowed Adam and Eve to continue to to live in the garden and the tree of life was just kind of open station for them? They would have been for If they would have eaten of the tree of life, they would have been forever, eternally, damned in sin because they would have been living eternally in that state. But thankfully, God in his mercy took the tree away. You know the first time you see it after the Garden of Eden in Genesis? Chapter 21 of Revelation. Great place for it to be because we're eternally in Jesus Christ. There is so much that was accomplished so many years ago, lined up perfectly with prophecy. The praise and the perplexed people, and they were perplexed. And I'm sure the disciples, when they saw just five days later, after seeing and being excited, exhilarated, on seeing Jesus is king, Jesus is king, five days later, Jesus is dead. Jesus is dead. What if it would have ended there? Jesus died for your sins, but he wasn't, wasn't good enough to have him risen from the dead. It would be the same as if you would trust Muhammad for your salvation. It would be the same if you would have trusted Hare Krishna. The same if you would trust a Catholic Pope. It would be the same if you trusted anyone that failed to rise from the dead. That's why it's so unique. And we would be dead in our sins. Exactly right. Preaching would be in vain and this would be a lie. And I wouldn't even be here. Because if you can't beat that, I've got nothing. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the ticket. It is the victory. Anybody says, what's the big deal about resurrection? It's the deal. It's the deal. Those other men, Stalin, Lenin, I could go on. All of these powerful, powerful men, these dictators, these that ruled their own world, they lie in state. 
And if they did not have a relationship with the King of Kings, the King of Glory, Jesus Christ, the one that gave himself for them and us, they will remain eternally dead. We've got a lot to be thankful for, don't we? Amen. We really do. Amen. So next week, let's look at that pinnacle. Let's watch the Passion Week. Let's see what happens not only Monday, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then Friday's horror of all horrors. Again, the night they were gathered together on a Thursday night, surrounded just by themselves. And again, I, I, want, I, I need to say this because this is literally how dangerous that Satan is. Do you know when you think you're safe <laughs> is a very dangerous place for you to be. Judas Iscariot, and again, that spirit of Antichrist, which we will see, we, we probably will not see. I hope we don't see it. But the spirit of Antichrist we see. But the ultimate pinnacle of the end is when Satan is incarnate in the Antichrist, the single person that opens himself up to being that Antichrist, Satan incarnate. There's another situation that is spoken of when Jesus Christ was in the room, making that person the guest of honor, that Satan literally entered into him in the presence of our Lord. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. Being that close to the Savior for three years and missing it, that's deception. That's what we're going to talk about in a few weeks. But I'll tell you what, isn't it amazing? Even in the time when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the living Son of God, you're a disciple and you can be taken astray from the evil, by the evil one. Don't ever get complacent. Don't ever get complacent. I want to talk about it. Are you okay for just a few moments? As I was studying this last week, the church of Ephesus, of which Paul wrote the book of Ephesians 2, Chapter 6, verses 10 through 18 are what we, if God wills, that we will want to dig into that. Because literally, he talks about our position in the first three chapters. He talks about our duties and the rubber meets the road. That's what I love about Paul. First of all, let's think right so we can live right. He does it in every one of the epistles, really. You've you got to get your thinking right because if you're not thinking right, you possibly couldn't live right. So let's think right. And at the end, he says, oh, by the way, even though you're thinking right and you're living right, there's a war out there, people. You've got to be ready. <laughs> But did you know that the church of Ephesus, there was another letter written to the church of Ephesus later. John penned the words in the book of Revelation. And Ephesus, it was a busy place. That church, it was vibrant. It was fantastic. There was stuff going on. If you were going to walk into the church of Ephesus, it was bustling and busy and doing things and People were affected and moving and shaking, and it was amazing. But Jesus said something. He said, you got a problem. And it's always the first problem every single time in individuals' lives, in churches' lives. You left your first love. Because when you leave loving Christ, when you leave loving God, You are open to everything else imaginable. Do you know where the church of Ephesus is today? It's dead. It's gone. Do you know how important it is for us to remain in love with Christ? 
It's the only thing. We have to, and how do we do that? What was our message with Daniel? He spent time with God. That's my challenge. Spend time with God. Spend time with God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the day. Thank you for Jesus. I can't imagine the emotions that would have went through my dear Savior's mind. We know even later in the week that to be at a, such a, a level so heightened with grief and passion that he literally was perspiring drops of blood because he had chosen he knew there was nothing there's nothing secret there was nobody taking charge over him he had literally known he would give everything for us he was laying his life down he was shedding his blood in the most cruel form of punishment known to man to buy us back to take us out of the sin slave market And here we are today, recipients of that grace. And Father, our thankfulness, our measure of that is woefully short. We find ourselves oftentimes not even willing to carve out enough time to get to know you better. Father, you're still there with open arms. As Jesus was described in the church of Laodicea, the last church... Literally, as Ephesus was the first, they had left their first love. The Laodiceans didn't even know their condition. And literally, Jesus was outside the door knocking to get in. Jesus may be knocking at your heart's door today, asking for more of you. Asking for you to open up your whole heart, your whole home, if you will. Those secret rooms, those ones that you haven't turned over to him, those rooms that are off limits, there's stuff in there that I've got to get rid of. There are things that I wouldn't want Jesus to know about or to see. The only way that those will go away is for Jesus to be invited in. As you spend time with him, as you grow in him, as you release to him, as you continually are in prayer with him, he takes care of it. For it's not up to us. We're so weak. We're so frail. What a perfect place to witness Christ's strength. Paul knew that personally. The thorn in the flesh, which was something he prayed for three times, it said, to have it released, he finally found out that it put him in a position that his dependence upon Christ showed it was the best place to be, was weak, so that he could become strong. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ and how he fulfilled prophecy those literally thousands of years ago. And fathers, next week, prepare our hearts through this one. Allow us to go through the Passion Week. May we see and walk those steps 
with the disciples. Seeing our master, our Messiah, our teacher, our giver of grace. Seeing how he responded, all in love. As he was prepared perfectly for the job before him. Father, may we become closer to you than we've ever been. Help us to spend more time with you. Help us to prioritize. Help us to open ourselves up completely, wholly to you. Forgive us, Father, for the sins that we've committed. Forgive us, Father, for those opportunities that we've missed to stand true and firm for you. And as always, Father, as Paul's told the Ephesians, speak the truth with love. Now, Father, once again, we pray for those that may have something that's very, very serious to them, something that they can't say to anyone else, something that's overbearing, can't be mentioned. But, Father, you know their heart. You know exactly what it is that they need. Father, I pray for that person. I pray that you'd wrap your arms around them, that they would feel the very essence of your love and your being, that you'd fill them with you. Thank you, Father, for Jesus saving us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.